Hi, my name is Luke Hendricks, and I uh, actually, from a pastoral standpoint, reside at Tiger most of the time uh, and serve there as executive pastor and have some duties as it relates to the, all of the congregations, but not a whole lot that way. I am here this morning because we're in the middle of a vision series that uh, really is Colossae's attempt as, as a church to say, okay, what is it that we are focused on as a church and as a people. So this morning, I want to be able to uh, highlight just uh, one area in particular, uh, generosity. But before we go there, let me just first start with this thought of um, us being a people that are gospel-rooted. This is kind of the primary or baseline for Colossae, and understanding that everything that we do comes from a position of being gospel-rooted. That's really part and parcel to the whole of the story of the Bible. You remember the story, I'm sure, well. God decides that he's going to create a universe, does so, and reaches the pinnacle of creation by creating human beings. And they're going to inhabit this planet Earth in which he has placed them on. And uh, things go awry right after the second chapter in Genesis, the beginning of of the story of the Bible, and humanity falls into sin, and basically a distrust of God. They take on the idea that they know what's best for themselves and kind of move away from God, and uh, then begins the downward spiral of humanity. That's not it for God, though. He has very much has designed for this pinnacle of creation called humanity. It's his hope that as he created them in his image, that they would go on to be conformed more and more into the image of who he is, his very character and nature. So um, God inserts himself back into the process here by calling out a man named Abraham and saying to him, hey, listen, if you follow me, have faith in me, I will make a great nation out of you. And that nation will bless the whole world because the whole world will be able to see me in you as image bearers of the one true God. And so that's Abraham's journey from his homeland to a promised land. And such begins the story of the nation of Israel. Now, you know how that story goes. It's kind of up and down. God has isolated this group of people. And he actually, after they go through a period of enslavement in Egypt... Uh, calls a man, Moses, to lead them out. And he does. He leads them out of slavery and headed back to the promised land. And he sets up a law, basically a way of living, and just says to his people, if you can do this, if you can follow this law, trust in me for all things, that is life, and follow this law, then you will be my witness here on earth and the whole world will know who I am. And, of course, the nation tries at times desperately to follow that, and other times is in complete rebellion. So it's up and down and up and down. And as we read the whole Bible, we see that it's pretty much hopeless for humanity. However, it's not hopeless for God. And in the end, he's going to fix the problem himself. And this is where the story gets ramped up a little bit. He sends his very own son, Jesus, to do what the nation of Israel couldn't do. And that is to live by complete faith in complete trust and righteousness with his heavenly father. 
And what God says is, my son is going to do this, and then he will live this sinless life and die as a sacrifice for my entire people group that can't do the job. He'll die for every single person who placed their faith in me, the God of the universe. And Jesus, of course, does that and goes all the way to the cross and to the grave and is raised again. And so this is where we pick up the story. Jesus uh, raising from the dead and now attributing to us, and hear me really carefully this morning, he attributes to us his perfect righteousness. So he's in perfect standing with his father because he never once distrusted his father. He did everything perfectly. And as a result of that, we are given that same righteousness. So as you sit here this morning, if you've placed your faith in Christ, then you are to your heavenly father completely, perfectly righteous. Do you feel that way? Yeah, that's always a tough one for me too. But it's in the telling of this story and its reality that we really get rooted in what is life. Now, just to put it in the vernacular of today, if if we were to go back in time and simply be there when Jesus first showed up and started into his ministry, he would look rather strange to us. And, And the reason is that the world created and humanity populating it And being without God to one degree or another has tried to explain everything that goes on through their eyes and their values. When Jesus shows up, he's the creator of the universe. And so when he walks in, he said, "Ah, I don't value that. And I don't value that. Here's what I value. So Jesus very much looks like he's walking upside down in the world. And he, he genuinely calls his disciples to come follow him and to walk upside down as well. That is the essence of Jesus' kingdom, reign, and rule. And that's when we speak of the kingdom, that's what Jesus is bringing into existence. And he calls his disciples to come follow and to walk the way he walks and to value what he values in order for us to be the witness to who God actually is if that makes sense. This journey then is one of being conformed to the image of the one true God. It's also to become truly human and to become the most accurate witness of our creator. So it's that gospel rootedness that we, that we really are grounded in. And this week we're going to look at the one word there, generosity. Every week we're taking one of those to highlight and say, okay, here is Colossae's way of saying, as we listen to God as a group of elders, all 18 of us, what is it that Colossae needs to be about? These five things in particular come up as the values that we hold on to. It's really the way we've sought to contextualize the very mission and vision and values of Colossae to the whole world. You could put a whole bunch of words up there and say, man, we're, we're dedicated to all those things, but the elders have narrowed it down and said, here are the five, being gospel-rooted first, here are the things that we see and hear God telling us to be involved in for our cultural moment, for us to be an effective witness here in the greater Portland area. So we're being 
called to value what Jesus values and to walk right side up in an upside down world. So generosity, that's the focus of our attention this morning. So when I say the word generosity, what does that elicit in you? Well, if you're anything like me, the subject of generosity makes me squirm. It just feels like it is, uh, is that low-level hum in my life of guilt. Like, um, I know I'm not as nearly as generous as I could be. And maybe I'm not as generous as I should be. So I just kind of <clears throat> live my day or my days with this low level of guilt. And that's when I'm not ignoring the subject altogether. That's attention. Somehow we've gotten this thing flipped where it elicits more guilt than anything else. Am I being a generous person? But then something prompts us. Perhaps it's a sermon. I'm going to be really generous today. This is about a two-hour sermon. Is that okay? Um, something prompts us. I want, to, I want to talk about that confrontation and our reaction to it. But first, just a few foundational thoughts as it relates to to uh, generosity. We'll get to the scriptures here in just a second. First of all, God is very generous. If you've been around Colossae for any length of time, then you know that we have been steeped in the understanding that the very nature of God is to be self-giving. That is his very being. It's not something he does. It's something that he is. Jesus, according to the author of Hebrews, is the exact representation of uh, God. And as such, his very nature was to give his life as the most generous act a person could give, to give his life, to lay down his life for his friends. So, foundationally, God is generous. When we speak of generosity this morning, and hopefully going forward, what we're really trying to represent is a generous life. It's the whole of life. It's not just simply money or resources. It's time, it's talent, it is resources as well. But if you can stop and think about this for a second, generosity is manifest in a whole lot of things. Are you a generous person with your words? You know, my wife is always on me for this. Um, I never yelled when I was uh, raising my children. Very seldom yelled. It's not because I couldn't. It's just that when I did, I wanted everybody to pay attention. Does that make sense? And so if dad never raised his voice, he could kind of go along. But as soon as he did, that'd be something different. What's crazy, though, is um, how much change you can bring about by being generous with your words. If I, you know, we just went through Mother's Day, and that's always kind of this, in my household, it's a little bit awkward, grown children who are her sons, are husbands of wives who they have Mother's Day at their house, and so now grandma or mom is kind of in a backseat position. But it never fails that if her children give her words on that day, it's the most generous thing that they can give, more than flowers or anything else, if they give her their words. Generosity also comes in attention and skill and resource and power. Are you generous to give away your power to empower somebody else? So you see, there's a, there's a bunch of ways that we can communicate generosity. 
Being gospel-rooted is to recognize that Jesus' kingdom reign and rule is here and now, and so we value what he values, and he values generosity. Now, there are two kingdoms at play in our world. There's the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Jesus. And if I were to describe to you what the kingdom of this world looks like, it's got three words that basically come up that describe this world and the values. Scarcity, anxiety, and apathy. Generally speaking, it's, it's all, we're right on the edge always of not having enough in the world or not having the right things or just one more thing will make us happy. You can watch the TV, you can listen to the radio, you can be anywhere where there's advertising going on and they're telling you things are scarce and you need to get this or that and they're producing a sense of anxiety. Is your 401k strong enough? Have you thought through retirement? Those are the things that now hit me. I never used to think of those things. Now I am that age, so they're aiming all that stuff at me. But maybe in an earlier day, are you in the right house? Are you driving the right car? Do you have the right dishwasher? It, it literally can be anything at that level. And it's always producing a sense of there's really not enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. Got to think through this. We now have the highest credit card debt the nation has ever had. What does that mean? Credit card debt. Now, I know probably all of us are carrying some portion of it. Generally speaking, it's wanting, that's not always the case, but it's always wanting to have something before you have the means to get it. And why? Because things are scarce, or it's time to get it is now. Don't wait. And it produces anxiety. Then when it comes to the topic of generosity, it produces an apathy in us. I'll explain that a little bit later as well. But I want you to look at how Jesus would describe his kingdom versus the world's kingdom. And he describes it this way. It's not scarcity, but abundance. I'm the king of the universe. Cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I control all of it. And as I was saying earlier to somebody, if I was sitting in your shoes, it'd be hard for me to listen to the preacher when I'm looking out the windows. Truly, it's a gorgeous setting. When you stop and look at the abundance that God has given, it can be overpowering. Well, I need you to think about that. You sit, if you've placed your faith in Christ, in perfect righteousness, under the rule and reign of Jesus, who is the creator and owner of all things. And you're his son or daughter. I know that's hard to feel, but I want you to intellectually grab a hold of it. We'll let the feelings catch up. When we start to see that, we see abundance and not anxiety, but peace and not apathy, but action. Because God's saying, I gave all of this to you because I'm a generous God and I want you to represent me now. I want you to show the world what kind of God I am through you. So when generosity is embraced as a way of life and we're living into the way that Jesus the king sees his kingdom and, uh, uh, and we as his followers are living into that, things begin to change. As such, you and I become increasingly uh, able to live into a re reality of what it really means to be human the way God intended 
We come to a fuller and truer sense of who we are and what we're capable of. And that's what God is seeking when he says to be generous. But here's the tension. The tension is that we, we live with this fallen nature to one degree or another. We have a hard time trusting in God in a very practical, tangible way. But I remind you, he's the one who loves you. He's the one who named you. And you are heir to his entire universe. But we live, practically speaking, that, uh, believing that our resources are scarce. And we're anxious because there's not enough time, there's not enough money, I don't have enough talent. That leads us down to a path of kind of hopelessness. It's not an overwhelming thing. We don't, we don't want to end it all, but we just feel like, oh, wow, there's nothing I could do. I really don't have enough to be generous. So it pushes us into apathy. Now, as a side note, I would just say, I will reference generosity and money and its role, and I told you that generosity is a whole life picture, but if you were just to look at Scripture and the words that Jesus spoke, he addresses money more than he addresses any other single subject in the New Testament. I don't think he really cared much about money. I mean, if you're the God of the universe, who cares about money? Okay, so I don't think that's the issue. But I think he was, he was saying, here's going to be an accurate picture, a window into your soul, Luke. You show me your checkbook, and I'll show you where your heart is. So that's how I want us to view that this morning, just that it's a window into our soul, not the end all. But there's a paradox here, and that's really what I want to focus the attention on this morning, the paradox of living generously. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture this morning. Uh, uh, We'll turn there in just a second, but this is the whole idea to see how this tension gets lived out, this paradox, the kingdom of this world having to be in this world, and the relief that comes realizing that Jesus' kingdom is here and now, and we can live a very different way. So if you have a Bible or your phone or something that has the scriptures on it, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll look at some verses there in chapter 9, actually 6 through 15, but we'll take just the first three here, take a look at what Paul is saying. Now, just to set this up, uh, Paul has been traveling through Macedonia, but he comes to Corinth, or he's, he's getting close to come to Corinth, and he wrote a letter to them saying, uh, but sometime back, saying the church in Jerusalem, the Christian church in Jerusalem, is in a bad way, under extreme persecution. People have lost their jobs. They're out of money. They don't have resources. And so I'm going to take an offering from the other churches to take it back to Jerusalem. And the Corinthians were the first to throw up a hand and say, we will do that. That was about a year ago. And then Paul writes the letter. <clears throat> and he says, I'm coming, and I'm going to collect that. Don't embarrass me. You said you were going to have an offering. Make sure you have one. And oh, by the way, this is all in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you can read about it. And oh, by the way, as I've been traveling in Macedonia, I've been telling the church in Macedonia that you're going to send an offering, and they're starting to give now too. So it's got this cascading effect. So he's, he's showing up, and he's saying, okay, so I'm, I'm going to come. Don't embarrass me. I want to pick up in verse 6 of chapter 9. And he's speaking to the idea of... Um, 
this, the giving, if you will, and, and what we're to be like, cheerful in that regard. Look at verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's nothing more than saying, trust God. If you can trust God in your generosity, you can sow generously. God's going to take care of you. Now, just for the record, trusting God is literally having faith. That's the way that we trust God. That's the only way that we can really please him. And it doesn't allow us to see what's beyond my initial trust in him. Because that's the very nature of faith, trusting God. Look at verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So this first thing that we need to see is that Paul's saying you're going to allow the Holy Spirit to direct you. And this is in opposition to following a rule. Now indulge me for just a second. If I start to talk about generosity and giving and those kinds of things, is there any part of you that just goes, hey, Luke, could you just tell us how much we're supposed to give? You know, like a percentage. Could I just get that, like, okay, I know you're going to give a sermon and everything. Can you just cut to the chase? Where do I need to be here? Where do I? Okay. There's a certain relief in that, isn't it? There's a relief that says, well, if I can just hit the mark, whatever the preacher's saying, then, then I don't have to think about it anymore. We want so badly a law or a standard because we want to know if, I've, if, if, if we've given enough. But given enough, that question pounds us with guilt and it compels us sometimes to give more in order to feel good about ourselves. But I want you to see here in the Bible that that is precisely what the Bible does not give us. The Bible focuses on the heart, not on the amount. When the heart is right, the giving will be right. Does that make sense? There are principles and standards that preachers will use to say, well, in the Old Testament there was a tithe, and that equaled tithe actually means 10%. But that's not what Jesus gives us in the New Testament, nor what Paul affirms. It is to be regular. It is to be sacrificial. And you're to do it cheerfully. And that's the principles that we live by as it relates to the giving of resources. So just if we were to follow Jesus, wouldn't it be interesting if he gets right up to the cross and just goes, well, I know God, you're demanding God, so I'm only going to give you a tenth of my blood. Just going to tithe that. Is that okay? That's not what Jesus did. He gave his whole body, all of his blood to save you and me. Verse 7 goes on to say, we need to be cheerful in giving. I spent a couple weeks ago, spent a week down in California with grandkids. They're the three older ones for me, 14, 12, and 10. Their parents were going away for a week, hadn't been away and since they got married about 20 years ago. So they were getting away by themselves, and Donna and I would go down and be with the kids. 
It's interesting. You can look at it and say, oh, that's really generous. It was. <laughs> um, and you can get down there and think, well, I'm giving up a week's vacation, and this is what I'm going to do. I love my grandkids. Love being around them, but I'm on the ragged edge of a pretty uh, running pretty hard schedule and thinking this isn't going to be any relief. Now, the worst thing that I could do is get down there and be grumpy. But I'm really good at that. <laughs> and yet I had to wake up every morning saying That's n- that will do no good. That will totally discount generosity. Why? Because my heart's not right. So I'm there, and I'm taking care of them, and we're going places, but I'm a jerk. Is that fun? Does that feel generous? Now, you can sabotage it, and that's really what's being said here is cheerfulness is an understanding that I want to do this, that my heart is right. Now, look at the paradox. Here it is stated in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So what's the paradox? If I could state it succinctly, in giving we receive, in grasping we lose. What Paul is saying, and God is saying through Paul, is all sufficiency will be handed to you. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. (coughs) Excuse me. That's everything, by the way. That's all. That's what Paul's saying. That will be yours and mine, so that we may abound in every good work. This is the concept of open-handedness. What I receive in my household, I hold with an open hand, and I'm willing to release it. If I try and grab it, I'll lose it. This is a heart attitude that my hands are open and that I would give liberally to those around me. Why? Because I follow Jesus and I'm trying to emulate, to be conformed to his image, to be truly gospel-rooted. Well, let's take a look at the next couple of verses. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing an increase and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Here are the ramifications or the consequences of generosity. It's funny, though. I, we got down there. I'm watching the kids. We're having a great time. We're running all over the place, doing all kinds of fun things. About every second night, the parents are FaceTiming in just to get connection with the kids. The first night, it's like, they're not particularly interested. They don't want to talk. They haven't been away long enough, you know. Then, the, the, then that pressure starts to rise. And finally, they're, they're just kind of talking about their day. And then uh, they're asking about, how's it going with you, mom and dad? Mom and dad are going, this is awesome. We're having a great time. By the end of the week, the kids are going, gosh, I was so good for mom and dad. It's crazy. But generosity starts to create this thankfulness in so many different ways. Huge ramifications. Let's look at the last few verses there. Verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Those are the ramifications. 13. By their approval of this submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them all and for others. In other words, 
we see you being rooted in the gospel. We see it in your confession that you don't live by the kingdom of this world's standards or values, but you're very much tapped into Jesus. Verse 14. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Our generosity, quite simply, is powered by gratitude. And gratitude is the only thing that's strong enough of a motivator to keep us in that embrace of generosity. Try and do this on a standard or a law, and you will wear yourself out. Love for God and love for others grows as we embrace the extravagant love of God for our own lives. As we step out in faith. What happens? Our hearts will change. When we start to give away money and time and talent with radical generosity, freely giving it away, we'll watch as we see God able to love his creation and his kingdom. And we will fall in love with that love and kingdom more than any of the stuff that we have. We hold God as security more than we hold security in things or money. So we land the plane. Turn with me to 1 Timothy really quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul is now instructing Timothy, and he's talking about a number of things, but he says, man, false teachers are going to come, but you need to kind of rebuke those in the first part of that, chapter 6, and then goes on to talk about true contentment. Look at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So I'm going to speak some truth here. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Cravings and graspings and trying to seek to hold on to those things push us into dark places, mess up our value system, and, and even to the point of questioning our own faith, we start to wander away. Contentment comes when we hold everything open-handed, when we are willing to allow for ourselves to be generous. Let's look at the last portion of chapter 6, verse, verse 17. I'm going to flip over here. Paul is just kind of driving home the point here. For uh, As for the rich in this present age, by the way, are you guys rich? Yes? Okay. Are you materially wealthy? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. If, if we're looking at world population, you're in the top 1% of world population and wealth, if you live in the United States. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's take a look at what this is really saying. Verse 17, God delights in our enjoyment of his material gifts. And he gives all of those things to us richly to enjoy. I'm not here to tell you, oh, you can have another Starbucks this week, another four or five times. You could feed 14 kids with that in Africa. That's not what I'm saying. This is a heart matter. This is an understanding that God gave us all those things to enjoy and to be generous with those things. This isn't about giving. It's not. Here here it is. When we quit worshiping money and start worshiping God, we will be given the freedom to be generous. God does not want to be tipped with my 10%. He wants to be worshiped. And that's what we're saying this morning. So generosity is the very nature of God and we're being conformed into his image. So let me leave you with this. First of all, if you have got preschoolers, uh, you need to go get them right now and have them come back and join the family because we're going to have a little bit of family time. So if you've got preschoolers, please feel free to get up and get them now. We're going to invite everybody back in. But I want to just take just a little bit of time here just to share with you my view of some of the most generous stories about Jesus in Scripture. Um, do you remember his first miracle? Yeah, he turned the water into wine. He's at Cana. You remember how that goes. They ran out of wine. It's pretty early in the celebration. Mom comes to Jesus and goes, they're out. He's going, hey, it's not my time. You can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. And then what's he do? He obeys his mother like a good kid. And he goes to the steward and he says, fill up those jars. There's six of them. They're 30 gallons apiece. And he goes, okay, taste it. Guy tastes it and said, this is crazy. This is such good wine. This is not the way this works. We serve the good wine first, and when everybody's feeling happy, we just let them drink whatever because they don't care at that point. But you've saved it for the last. Here's the point, though. 180 gallons of wine? How big is that party? Man, this is Jesus and his generosity. How about um, the time when he's fishing? Right, He's been preaching and everything, and then the crowds are all crowding around. He gets in Peter's boat, preaches a little bit more, and then it's, they're done. And he goes, hey, Peter, push out. And Peter's like, Lord, we fished all night. There was nothing. You don't fish in the day. I know you know preaching, but I know fishing. This is ridiculous. But at your will, we'll push out. They push out. Throw down the nets. Remember what happened. They put it all in the boat. The boat starts to sink. They call over another boat. They fill that one up. It starts to sink. It's nuts. Do you remember Peter's reaction? Yeah, he falls on his knees in front of Jesus and says, Away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. What was Peter's realization? He didn't trust God for his own work. Proficient. 
All of a sudden, this God who's been preaching and speaking truth comes walking into my world, and he owns that too. And Peter is overwhelmed with Jesus' generosity. If I were Peter, I'd be pulling out a contract and have him sign it. But How about the widow of Nain? Do you remember that story? This is the widow, lost a husband, has one son, and the son dies. Jesus is coming into Nain. The, the funeral procession is coming out, and there's this confrontation right there. I've often said this. If you want to know how to act at a funeral, do not follow Jesus. He's no good because he interrupts everyone that he's at. And literally, he walks up to the dead son and raises him up. And then does what? That would be a miracle and everybody would be going crazy. He handed the boy to his mother. This is Jesus' tender generosity in the moment. How about the Last Supper? Remember this? They're up in the upper room. It's a holy moment. And Jesus is saying, here's what this represents, this, this bread and this cup. This is what it represents. And they take it and eat it and drink it. And then what happens? A fight breaks out. The disciples start arguing as to who's going to be the greatest. I was a youth pastor for many, many years. Used to have those moments I just prayed for. We'd get set up, have all the students right there on the cusp of a holy moment. And then something would just blow the whole thing up. I think I know that feeling. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in that moment? This, by the way, is just signs of life. Don't, don't worry about it. It's perfect. Jesus said to his disciples, hey, you're the ones who stood by me in my trials. You're my friends. In the midst of their argument as to who was going to be the greatest, he's giving them generous words. But it's really crazy right at the end because it's Peter, and he starts to have this interaction with Peter, and, and he knows what's coming, that Peter's going to deny him and all that. But Peter's saying, I'm going to follow you, Lord. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And what Jesus doesn't say is, I've denied him access. No. Here's what Jesus says. But I have prayed for you. The God of the universe prays for you. That's what Jesus does now. He intercedes on your behalf. That is our generous God. That is who we celebrate when we come to the tables. This is who we place our faith in. People have asked me, as a pastor many times, how, um, how do you measure spiritual growth? And, you know, pastors sit around trying to figure that out, and it's just, it's, it's almost hopeless to try and figure out how, how to measure spiritual growth. But I've reached this conclusion. If you'll show me a person who's growing in gratitude, I will show you a person who's growing spiritually. And this table represents our confession that we are grateful for the grace that's provided. There is a restriction as to who can come to this table. Okay? The only people allowed at this table are sinners. That's it. If you don't sin, this table's meaningless. But if you do, this table is everything. 
This is grace to be feasted upon. This is Jesus saying, come, take what I have to give. Let your life be filled up and secure. And may you be generous. Can I pray for you? Let me do that. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word and the challenge that it gives to us. Pray that our hearts would be moved. Not so much in how much or when to give, but rather that you would cause us to be grateful. And then we'll trust your spirit to move in our hearts. God, I know that's hard because the spirit will sometimes say, here's what you need to do, and then we'll hear another voice that says, oh, that's foolish, or no, you shouldn't do that, or you need to save, or you can't give that away. God, I pray for this community of faith in Sherwood, that when they hear your voice, they'll respond. And I understand that as we respond quickly, we will hear your voice more clearly the next time. God, may all grace be upon Sherwood. And may you fill them as they feast on you at this table. For the sake of Jesus and his glory alone.